Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Hmm. Well, I am glad to be back. I kind of really wanted to meet last week. I was really itching to meet, and then uh, I was like, oh, maybe I'll just like do... I was thinking, oh, I'll just like record a Dharma talk. And then the holiday thing just like swept away my whole life for the week, <laughs> the weekend. I hope you all are well. It's good to see you. So I'm going to try to do something different with this topic tonight. I'll see if I can stick the landing on this. So the last few weeks we've been talking about Vedana, right? We've been talking about sensations and feelings, right? The second foundation of mindfulness. So I'll just say a few words to recap so we're all on the same page about where we're going. And then I want to address the topic of unworldly sensations or unworldly feelings tonight. And it's such a strange topic, but I want to give it a little spin uh, and show you how it relates to the, the middle path, the Buddhist concept of the middle path. So I'll see if I can make this clear. It's, it's a really important topic. It's just that we don't talk about it very much. So there's not a lot of background that most of us share in talking about otherworldly sensations. So um, I'll see if I can give you some context to make it seem a little bit more grounded in your practice. So we'll give it a shot. So for those of you who've listened to the last couple podcasts over here uh, live, we are talking about Vedana. So let me just give the, the basic facts of life for sensations here real quick. So when we talk about Vedana, we're talking about the second foundation of mindfulness. So our first foundation of mindfulness is, of course, the body. And then our third foundation is thinking and feeling and mood, which we call mind. So in between this first and third foundation, we have this bridge that the Buddha says is very important, which is our Vedana, our feeling tones. And so the main thing to know about the Vedana as a category is that we call it feelings, but it's not emotions. It's just positive, negative, and neutral sensations. So when you're doing body scanning or body sweeping practice, anytime your awareness touches any sensation, positive, negative, neutral, that is often what we call Vedana or sensations, bodily feelings. It's just that tone that arises and passes away with each moment that tends to be underlying the arising of thinking and emotions. So there's always a tone or a feeling tone or an affective tone to each present moment experience. So the reason the Buddha describes feelings, Vedana, as being so important is he says that Vedana is the bridge between the feeling tone and craving. And we all know in the Dharma, craving and aversion are such big words, right? Craving and aversion are considered to be essentially the cause of suffering. So if we can look at the chain of causality and break the chain between the feeling tone and the arising of craving, then we don't have to worry about the grasping and the clinging on the back end. So the Buddha sees feelings as a really great place in the chain of dependent co-arising to stop the cycle of suffering before it gets too great. And that's where the sort of reputation of Vedana comes in, in the Dharma, is that the Buddha cites that as the best place to cut off the arising of suffering and stress before it becomes too overwhelming and before it does harm to ourself and others. So when we talk about feelings, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this opportunity to notice when things become unpleasant before we speak unskillfully, before we act out and harm ourselves or harm others in some way. If we can use awareness to get really attuned to the arising and passing away of the feeling tone of every moment, it's like we're being really proactive in being able to choose skillfully what our behavior is going to be three seconds or three steps down the road. So this is why feelings are such a big deal in the Dharma, because it's the last, <laughs> it's the last off-ramp before craving arises, right? So we want to get off on the exit before craving. If you have to get off on the exit of craving, that's fine. We can still manage. But if you can get off 
and exit before, the Buddha says that's even better. So that's why we talk about Vedana and why it's so important. Now, the other thing about Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is that the Buddha gives these categories. He says this set of sensations actually comes in two forms, worldly and unworldly. So worldly sensations are just the sensations that we are all familiar with. They're the sensations that arise at sense contact. So any sensations that arise, hearing, touching, seeing, smelling, tasting, the sensual experience of being an embodied being produces feelings that are worldly, of the world, based on sense contact. That's considered worldly feelings. And the reason the Buddha makes a contrast is that he says feelings that arise from spiritual practice are of a different nature. Feelings that arise from spiritual practice, from the meditation and from different spiritual practices, are considered unworldly. And I'm going to tell you why. He says unworldly sensations are more satisfying than worldly ones. Unworldly sensations are more satisfying. The sensation of satiation lasts longer. And most importantly, unworldly sensations that come from spiritual practice incline the heart and incline the mind to want to do more spiritual practice. So worldly sensations tend to have us agitated. They tend to be not satiating. They tend to encourage craving and encourage aversion. And they tend to trap us in a cycle of desire. So the Buddha likes to distinguish between the emotional content, well, not technically emotions, the feeling content of spiritual practice, and talks about how these feelings are otherworldly because they incline the heart and mind to be less harmful to ourselves and less harmful to others. They encourage more spiritual practice and they lead us away from the type of pleasure that tends to get us trapped in suffering. So that's the, ma the main difference. And most of the time, if you ask yourself, is this a pleasant sensation that's worldly or unworldly? You just ask yourself, is my heart and mind filled with craving, aversion, or agitation in this moment? then it's probably, just an un it's probably just a worldly sensation. But if there is a sense of the factors of awakening, if there's a sense of gratitude, a sense of equanimity, those kind of emotions are considered spiritual or unworldly. So you often ask yourself, where is my heart leaning in this moment? Is it leaning towards craving or is it leaning towards being secluded from the stimulation? Can I fall back into a sense of contentment then you're headed towards the unworldly direction. It's just an odd word. It's an odd word to use, uh, but that's how the Buddha describes it. But it's really important. The distinction is really important. And I wanted to just give you a little bit of history here on where this term comes from and why it becomes so important in uh, Dharma practice. So let me see. I've got some suttas here. So I'm going to read a sutta. Okay. So I want to just talk a little bit about the middle path. And this is well, this will land us square in unworldly sensations. I want to talk about the middle path. So the Buddha describes the uniqueness of his Dharma as being the middle way or the middle path. And he says that when we start our spiritual journey, the, the decision to start the spiritual journey comes from a fork in the road of human experience. And he says when human beings experience dukkha, they essentially have two choices. And the fork in the road is either bewilderment, another awkward word, bewilderment, or a choice to go on a spiritual quest. That when suffering arises for human beings, we can either become confused, we can become overwhelmed, we can become inundated with the dukkha, and that's called bewilderment. And if we're bewildered by the dukkha, then we don't tend to pursue a spiritual path out of the suffering. And when the Buddha describes bewilderment, sometimes it's described as this. When suffering happens to you and you say, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening? Specifically, why is this happening to me? That's bewilderment. That's that sensation of, I can't believe that there is this stress or this discontent. And it tends to sort of contract the heart and mind into a space where we don't necessarily feel the openness or the 
clarity of mind to seek some way out. It sort of traps us. So we get bewildered. If we can experience suffering in a way beyond that bewilderment, the Buddha says you've got this other fork in the road, which is the choice for spiritual practice. You can decide to find a way out of the suffering, but it's a choice. And on occasion, our hearts and minds are open to that choice. And on other times, the choice is not there. The challenge, the Buddha says, is that when we make that choice, when we make that choice not to be bewildered or hung up or trapped, stumbled by dukkha, by stress, most often the first thing we do to get out of the suffering is to seek refuge in sensual pleasures, because that's what we're told is the way out. We're usually told, culturally speaking, that the best way out of pain is just to go find some kind of pleasure to distract us. And the Buddha talks about how that's totally normative experience to, in response to suffering, to simply grasp onto the closest sensual pleasure that will free us from that momentary sense of suffering. The challenge, though, as we all know, as meditators, is that the more we grasp and the more we cling to sensual pleasures, which now we can also call worldly sensations, the more we grasp or cling to worldly sensations, the more worldly sensations we want, the more we rely on them, depend on them, cling to them, identify with them. So there's this cycle of suffering that happens to most of us when we start to pursue a way out of suffering. I, st I stumbled upon this great quote from, uh, from Achan Cha the other day about this. And uh, Achan Cha describes the reaching out for worldly pleasures as an escape from suffering. He describes it like grabbing a snake and he says, you see the snake and you look at one end of the snake and you see that it has teeth and you don't want to get bit. So instead of grabbing the mouth of the snake, you decide to grab the tail because there's no teeth on that end. And then you find out that the tail of the snake is connected to the mouth. And he's like, that's pleasure. We reach out to pleasure thinking, oh, it's innocuous if I can just grab it here. And then it turns around and bites you. So if we're not bewildered and we make the choice to try to find a way out of suffering, most of us end up in the trap of only having sensual pleasures as a way of trying to distract ourselves or get out of the pain. And as we know, it's a trap. It's a cycle of more dukkha. Another thing that we often do, and this goes back to the Buddha's journey, and this is a much more applicable, of course, as you'll see in a second, to the Buddha's time than it is now. But the Buddha said another response to getting out of pleasure is to focus on pain. This is the ascetic route of practice, right? This is the practice where spiritual seekers, seeing that pleasure is a problem and that it can be a trap and lead to more suffering, human beings have experimented with using pain as a way of liberation, using pain to purify the mind as a way of getting out of the trap of pleasure. And I was looking this up the other day and I stumbled across this really interesting article that was saying, there's hardly any spiritual tradition with a large enough amount of followers that doesn't have some branch or sect that at some point didn't experiment with pain being a path to freedom. That at some point, spiritual practices and spiritual traditions, human beings in their attempt to try and figure out how to get beyond the trap of pleasure, experiment with harming themselves in some way or taking on renunciation or extreme practices in order to see if pain can be an out for pleasure, which I thought was really interesting. So at the time of the Buddha, ascetic practices were big. And we know this because the Buddha went on a huge journey of ascetic practices. Now, what's interesting about the ascetic practices, and I'm going to read a quote here from the Buddha, which I find really interesting, is that the ascetic practices were sort of designed to essentially free us from humanity, right? Our, our humanity. It was basically in the time of the Buddha, these are these really harsh self emulation practices were based on trying to rid ourselves of the humanness. So hurting the body, not wearing clothes, not eating food, putting ourselves in extremely harmful weather situations. 
and trying to transcend the humanness, the human need for shelter, the human need for clothing, the human need. So the idea was if we can eliminate the humanness, then perhaps a spiritualness will take its place. So the Buddha goes on this journey of self-harm uh, and self-torture. And the most common practices, which I'm not sure if you've heard of these before, are really interesting. So the most common ones are denying food. So the Buddha would eat a single grain of rice. And there were a lot of ascetics who died from starvation, particularly in the Jain tradition. Dying from starvation was considered to be fairly noble as far as a spiritual practice. Um, denying food, so just eating a, a grain of rice a day, not staying in any kind of shelter, wearing minimal clothing. A couple other ones are sleeping on nails, standing on one foot until you collapse. Um, those were the main ones. So this is obviously not as much a contemporary thing that we are dealing with in this digital Dharma hall. But the point is, is that human beings in their effort to make this choice between bewilderment and the search have often very commonly tried to experiment with severe renunciative practices to see if pain can be an out to some kind of spiritual freedom. So it's a, it's a normative thing that the human heart and mind goes to to see if it can find relief. I want to read this sutta here about the Buddha's description of the ascetic practices because it's really intense. Okay, this is probably not straight from the Buddha's mouth, I imagine, but it's in the text. So I'm going to read it. This is the description of the Buddha's experience of asceticism. It's a couple paragraphs, so go ahead and bring awareness back to the body and just see how this lands for you. The Buddha says this about his asceticism. I thought, suppose I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, or pea soup. So I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, or pea soup. My body became extremely emaciated. Simply from my eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. My backside became like a camel's hoof. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old run-down barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets, like the gleam of a water deep in a well. My scalp shriveled and withered like a green bitter gourd, shriveled and withered in the heat and the wind. The skin of my belly became so stuck to my spine that when I thought of touching my belly, I grabbed hold of my spine as well. And when I thought of touching my spine, I grabbed hold of the skin of my belly as well. If I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face right there, simply from eating so little. If I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair on my body rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed, simply from eating so little. Not exactly a testimonial to the success of ascetic practice for the Buddha. What's interesting about his description is that the Buddha was considered a very good and skilled ascetic. He was very determined to make it work. And as we know from the story, he almost died, and it was that near-death experience, so to speak, that sort of pulls him out of this part of the extreme spiritual practices and into a different path that he calls the middle path. I'll read another quote, which is the follow-up to this. There are two extremes that are not to be indulged, that which is devoted to sensual pleasure and that which is devoted to self-affliction. By avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way is realized. Two extremes that are not to be indulged, that which is devoted to sensual pleasures and that which is devoted to self-affliction. By avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way is realized. So the Buddha was obviously pretty serious about his quest to get out of suffering. He wanted to take it as far as he could. He wanted to make sure he was trying out what he was taught to see if it really could work. And in this case, for the extreme practices, it did not. 
And we know that the Buddha came from, at least as the story goes, from a wealthy background. So he had already been in a position to try out sensual pleasures. So both sides of the path of sense pleasures and from extreme renunciation were something that he experienced. And it's out of this experience that comes what we call the middle way. What's interesting, and this is where we come back around to our idea of unworldly sensations, the question is, what actually lies in the middle? And this is something we have to answer for ourselves as practitioners. There's going to be the sort of traditional answer, but then there's also the personalized answer. For us, what does it mean to walk a middle path? Like, practically speaking in life, what does that mean? And this is something that always has interested me, is that what lies in the middle of the road? Because we talk about not having the extremes, but then that leaves the question, but then what do we do? What does it mean to be in the middle? So the first thing I wanted to say about that is we often misunderstand the middleness to be neutrality. We often understand the middleness to be some type of equanimous neutrality that neither has pain or neither has pleasure, that it's some kind of neutral state. And that is not exactly what the Buddha intended with the idea of walking the middle path. So I'm going to tell you how the Buddha conceptualized this idea of middleness. So a, a more skillful way of looking at it is to say that what lies in the middle of extreme renunciation and extreme self-indulgence of sense pleasures, what lies in the middle is actually a balance between the two. The use of both renunciation and pleasure at the same time in a way that's actually skillful. So instead of moving away from the ends and abandoning them completely, the Buddha actually used both ends of the spectrum, but he did them in a much more skillful and controlled manner. So when the Buddha describes extreme renunciation practices, he says that the reason that putting yourself into pain and distress doesn't help with spiritual practice is because it exhausts the mind and the heart. There's no way to have clear seeing when we're so tired if we're overworking in spiritual practice. Now, granted, if you're not eating, <laughs> I mean, imagine like, you know, if I go one meal or not have a snack, then I'm tired and irritable. So like here in this position where you're starving yourself, the ability to be mindful or to do anything at all is going to be obviously limited. And so he says that this sort self-torment this exhaustion that he kept talking about, this weakness, was preventing his consciousness from actually being able to do the work. So it exhausts the body and the mind if we push ourselves too hard and think that we have to be in pain in order to have insight. Now, similarly, on the other hand, the Buddha says the same thing, that when we're overly stimulated by sense pleasures, the mind gets cloudy and can't see clear enough to engage in spiritual practice. So if we move to the middle, if we move away from the extremes, but we still hold on to both of the concepts, then we have a much better description of the Eightfold Path. The Buddha used both pleasure and renunciation and ascetic practices to create what we were talking about earlier, which is unworldly pleasure. So instead of it being neutral, he finds a way of creating a meditative practice that uses pleasure and uses letting go, simplifying life, letting go of a lot of sensual pleasures, the big sensual pleasures, and creating a whole new realm of otherworldly experiences that he uses as a path to freedom. So the Buddha never says that we shouldn't use pleasure in our practice. And he doesn't say you shouldn't practice any asceticism, that you shouldn't be letting go. You should let go. Renunciation is a part of the path. But he says, bring it to the middle. Bring it to the center so that you're doing both in a way that's skillful, that clarifies the mind and opens the heart and inclines you to more spiritual practice rather than exhausting you or injuring you or pulling away from the spiritual quest. I'll clarify this in a second, but that's essentially what we mean when we say the middle path. We're not going into neutral. We're not saying that the middle path is beyond pleasure and pain. What we're saying is the Buddha used both pleasant sensations, these otherworldly pleasant sensations, and he was a renunciate. He simplified his life 
He turned away from materiality, and but he didn't do it to such a degree that there was self-harm. So in between lies the middle way. And I'll clarify what this means for otherworldly sensations as we go. After the Buddha got really sick from the extreme practices that he was doing, he has this sort of, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was doubt, but it was definitely a sense of like, what do I do next? Because these were the common practices of the time. And he had already practiced some of the yoga practices and had been working with a couple non-dual teachers and some other mystics. And so he had already kind of been doing this for quite a few years. And so he sits down and asks himself, what might be this other way that I'm looking for, because this doesn't seem to be working. And I'm going to read a quote that speaks to this decision that he makes, which I think many of you are actually familiar with. This is from uh, the Majima Nikaya. You'll recognize it, I think, for some, for some of you. I thought, I recall once when my father, the Sakyan, was working, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture in pleasure, born from seclusion. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening. This pleasure, okay, I'll go, I'm not going to read the second part. This is the path to awakening. I'll read it one more time. I thought I recall once when my father the Sakyan was working, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I asked, could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. So on the backs of the asceticism that we heard in the other sutta, the extreme pain and uh, fatigue that the Buddha had, he remembers a time where he was practicing essentially what amounts to concentration and mindfulness, where he was sitting under a tree and fell into what we call the jhana, which is the pleasurable states of mindfulness, the pleasurable states of concentration. And in that moment, he realizes that though secluded from sense pleasures, which are worldly pleasures, though he's secluded from the worldly pleasures, an otherworldly experience arises, rapture in bliss arises, and he has this memory and says, okay, that can be perhaps a path to liberation. And the reason this passage is so famous is because the Buddha says that pleasure is part of his path out. That the jhanas, which we really just know as continuous mindfulness or pleasure states of the meditation, that pleasure itself can be used as a path out of dukkha. The difference, though, between sense pleasures and what he's talking about here is that they're otherworldly. The jhana, as we call it, or the pleasant, pleasurable sensations that comes from meditation are considered otherworldly pleasures. They're pleasures that we can use within the spiritual path that can also get us out of suffering. And this is hugely different from the meditative visions that were at the time of the Buddha were already around. This middle path idea that one can still renounce, seclude oneself, from the world, right? He was still a monk, that you could seclude yourself but not harm yourself, and you could still find pleasure and use pleasure for spiritual practice, was that balancing act he did becomes the Eightfold Path. That middle road is, in fact, the birth of this idea that we can use unworldly sensations, unworldly pleasures, still pleasures, and still experience freedom that we don't have to be in pain or give up everything in order to be free. Now, keep in mind, when you listen to the passage, he does say specifically there's seclusion. So you're going inward. 
So you are renouncing. You're going away from the world. You're going into the heart, not out to objects. And you are secluding yourself from agitated mind states. You're secluding yourself from the worldly sensations. And you're finding within yourself a new level of pleasure, a new level of peace, which then becomes this middle path out of the dukkha. It's just a huge um, change in Indian philosophy and Indian spiritual practice right here when the Buddha makes this decision that you can walk a middle path, that you do not have to do the ascetic practices, and that you can use pleasure as part of a path to freedom. So I'm going to talk a little bit about just to expand the idea of these unworldly pleasures so you can see how much of the Dharma actually includes these feelings because we don't talk about them very much. So I'm going to talk a little bit about where we see them in the practice. And the reason I think it's important to find them in your practice is that it's so much easier to see negative sensations than it is positive ones. And in our meditation, the more you look for unworldly sensations, which is just pleasurable feelings from your practice, the more you can find them and hold them in awareness, the stronger those sensations become. The more you look for them, the more you'll see them. And the more you see them, the more you can fall back into them as an active part of the path. Now, even without the jhanas, which are their own kind of pleasurable states, there's all kinds of different ways that these unworldly sensations occur in the middle way. So I'm just going to list some of them so you can kind of see where we're going with this. Achan Fuang said this really interesting thing. He said, he said, nobody is forcing us to practice and nobody is paying us to do so. Practice is a choice. And he says this in the context of inviting us to enjoy the choice to be spiritual practitioners, to remind ourselves that we have the option of not practicing. We can fall back on unconscious habit patterns. We can live lives however we, we choose. But choosing spiritual practice can be a joy in and of itself. That the very choice to say, I want to show up in the world as a compassionate being. I want to show up in the world as someone with joy and equanimity in my heart. The choice to walk the path can be a sense of unworldly pleasure. It can inspire us to be joyful in the pursuit of that very choice to engage in spirituality. And so the first part of the path that is considered pleasurable is just the choice to practice, the choice to open our hearts and choose compassion and choose kindness and choose liberation. And we're encouraged to remind ourselves that that's a huge choice. That's a freedom that we have to be able to say, I'm going to be a meditator, or I'm going to become awakened, or I'm going to have an open heart. And that we should feel some joy in that choice, knowing that no one's paying you to do it. You don't have to do, you don't have to do equanimity practice to pay your mortgage. No one's going to pay you for it. You do the practice because you decide that there's going to be some inspiration here, some joy, and that it's worth doing. So the very beginning of the practice, we remind ourselves of the joy in the choice of not staying in the bewilderment to move towards spirituality as a part of our life. The second example of the path itself being joyful or otherworldly in its pleasantness has to do with generosity. Whenever the Buddha talks about the path in steps, like he doesn't always talk about it in steps. It's usually fragmented with different suttas and different teachings. But there are a few suttas when the Buddha lays out the path in stages or steps. And whenever he does it, he tends to do it in a particular order. And each of the phases that he describes is supposed to give us deeper and deeper otherworldly pleasure. And it always starts with generosity. It always starts with the choice to let go, right? To let go of the I, me, mine, to let go of the selfing, to let go of the clinging and the grasping of our attachment to the world. And so whenever the Buddha says the foundation of the Dharma is dot, 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 and it's in a graduated sequence, he always talks about generosity. Start by letting go and opening your heart. This is intended to have that sense of pleasure of giving, 
Not only is our practice giving to ourselves, but always, always the practice is the aspiration that all beings can be free from suffering. That generous openness and that generous intention of spirit is intended to be what they say an unworldly pleasure. And that we can settle into that sense of generosity, realizing being generous feels good. It feels good to ourselves as self-care, and it feels good to be that in the world, to show up as a generous being. So not only is the choice of spiritual practice considered to be an unworldly pleasure, but the choice to have a generous, open heart is also considered to be an unworldly pleasure and foundational to the path. Now, after generosity comes virtue. The idea behind our precepts or behind ethical considerations is that a human heart that chooses to be kind, that chooses to be honest, and chooses to non-harm is a mind that will experience a sense of contentment, pleasure, and ease. And so virtue comes before any meditation practice because it calms the mind and opens the heart. It gives us a sense of pleasure in the present moment that is unworldly and inspires us to practice further. Most of the time when, I mean, I do this and I know a lot of teachers that do, when we teach the virtue practices, when we teach precepts, we talk about how keeping precepts keeps us having a guilt-free heart, right? So when we sit down to meditate, the mind isn't concerned about the hatred and the grudge and the white lie we told earlier or the way we said something unpleasant to somebody or we lashed out in some way or spoke to someone in hatred or anger. When we commit to skillful speech, when we commit to not lying or taking that which is not freely given, we open the heart to a place of rest and ease. And this is the beginning of our practice, this otherworldly relaxation into an ethical mindset, right? Where we decide we are going to be kind to ourselves and kind to others. So the Buddha describes these as producing these otherworldly pleasures, and he calls them spiritual food. These otherworldly pleasures are spiritual nourishment. It's the food of the practice that we start to eat, so to speak, that then wants us to have more spiritual practice. So after virtue comes concentration in this type of series. And concentration is, of course, referring to the jhanas, which are essentially pleasant sensations that arise from your continued mindfulness. When you're sitting in meditation and you have a sense of expansiveness and fullness, when you have a sense of relaxation and ease, this is tranquility and joy. These are the factors of awakening that are, again, considered otherworldly. The very pleasure of being present is considered to be a spiritual emotion, not a worldly emotion, because it comes from the practice itself. So otherworldly practices are your mindfulness and concentration. That's the other part of the path that generates a pretty obvious pleasure for ourselves, <laughs> Unless, of course, you're having a really rough meditation and it's really uncomfortable and your mind's wandering and you're getting irritable, then that's, of course, those are just regular hindrances. But in those moments where there's peace and there's ease, that's considered otherworldly. And the Buddha invites us to really fall back into that sensation as part of this middle path. The fruit of the path is, in part, the pleasure of this unworldliness. And then the last one is our enlightenment factors. Our enlightenment factors are, as we all know, mindfulness, concentration, skillful effort, investigation, also known as curiosity, and tranquility and rapture. All of the heart-mind qualities that the Buddha describes that lead to awakening are considered to be pleasant when they're done properly and they come to maturity. So when we're properly mindful, the mind feels pleasant. When we're equanimous, whenever we have that balance in our life and we're, our mind is just, okay, not going to overreact, not going to underreact, there's a pleasantness there that we can note. That's an otherworldly sensation. When we're curious about something in our practice, oh, look, the mind has wandered, investigation. There can be a pleasantness to being curious about what is happening in the present moment. There can be a joy in the insight of the practice. And even effort. You know that feeling you have when your practice is going well and it's just the right effort. 
you're sitting the amount that you want to sit. You're sitting for the length of time that's working for you. It seems to be producing the results and you're just kind of doing it. You're kind of, okay, I've got meditation in my life and it's working well. That sense that the effort is really working for you. That's a sense of ease and well-being. That's the gift of the practice. So all of these qualities are considered to be spiritual food. They're considered to be otherworldly pleasures that feed our practice and lean, or as the Buddha says, inclines the heart to practice more, to be able to say, oh, this choice to go away from bewilderment, this choice to free myself from suffering is a worthy endeavor. This is really pleasurable. This is really bringing me some ease. One last thing to say about these unworldly pleasures. The Buddha says that if we don't cultivate unworldly pleasures, we're always going to fall back into the pleasures that we know, which is going to be the attachment and dependence on sensual contact. And so the Buddha says we have to develop, I sometimes I just call it, it's like it's kind of like methadone, right? It's a transitionary pleasure that allows us to leave behind one pleasure and trade up for another one. And the Buddha says that when we can really inhabit the pleasure of generosity, when we can really inhabit the pleasure of equanimity or the choice just to be a spiritual practitioner, when we can fall back into that pleasure, that pleasure gives us enough distance from worldly sensations to be able to see the suffering in them. It, so it's basically when I talked about earlier how the Buddha wanted to renounce without harming himself. He wanted to practice seclusion, but without having to starve, without having to be out in the cold and these kind of things. And what the Buddha says is by using unworldly pleasures, we can separate ourselves. We can renounce sense contact and the sensuality that causes suffering because we have something else to take refuge in. We don't actually have to harm ourselves along the way. We just have to take a step back further enough to be able to see how craving and aversion and our attachment and dependence on sense contact causes so much suffering. But if we don't have a pleasure to step out of, pleasure is just too much fun. No one wants to spend time taking a look at the drawbacks of pleasure. There's no motivation to do so. So the Buddha says otherworldly pleasure gives us the motivation to keep going because it gives us a refuge that's still pleasurable, but not harmful. The other thing that the Buddha says is that if we don't have otherworldly pleasures, the mind doesn't remain in the present moment. We need to be able to find a way of making presence pleasurable. Once presence is pleasurable, the mind wants to be there. And the longer it can stay present, the more wisdom arises. So part of the use of these unworldly pleasures, whether it's practicing loving kindness or practicing generosity or practicing the jhanas, practicing to create a sense of pleasure in the meditation allows you to meditate longer, to enjoy the experience of present moment awareness. Then the mind wants to be there. So the Buddha says, the more access you have to unworldly pleasures, the less the mind wanders. The mind wants to be back into a state of generosity and ease because it's like, oh, this is nice. So you're giving the present moment a, <laughs> you're sort of decorating it, so to speak, with unworldly sensations to invite the mind to come back and inhabit it, to really be present in the moment and so the more you look into establishing the otherworldly emotions, then the deeper the practice becomes. It's a natural part of the experience. I'll conclude with this. The challenge oftentimes is that we need to seek out, I think I said this a few weeks ago in the previous talk on Vedana, the pleasant tone of unworldly sensations is more subtle than drinking a beer or watching a movie or these sensations are very overstimulating to our sense doors. And so when we begin practicing the Dharma, the otherworldly sensations are hard to see and they're not very stimulating. We don't even know where, where to look for it. How often do you think to yourself, 
oh, wow, that's the subtle pleasure of being generous. This is not something that we're going to focus on. It's easy to notice how fun it is to watch a comedy on TV. It's like, oh, that was a good movie. It's obvious that there's a pleasure there. But how often do we say, wow, I'm really mindful right now. And there's a sense of ease in the body that comes along with mindfulness. I'm going to see if I can really lean into that pleasure. So we have to remember to be on the lookout for these pleasure pleasures. What I like to compare it to is fasting. Like if you've ever fasted before, what's interesting about fasting is you give up food. And as you give up the food, your taste buds start adjusting, right? And when you go back to eat the food, you see how salty and how sweet it actually is because you step back from the sensation long enough to be able to see, wow, that is like, I can't believe how salty that is. It didn't seem salty before, but because you had stopped taking in the food for a while, when you come back to the food, it's really intense. So using otherworldly pleasures allows us to step back from the worldly ones and really see how intense and overwhelming and overstimulating they really are. And when we can make that contrast, we begin to see that so much of our worldly pleasures are very coarse. They're not actually as pleasant as we think. They're stimulating, yes, but they're not actually as pleasant. And as we spend more time really seeking out the texture and the taste of the unworldly ones, those pleasures start to be really satisfying. They become really nourishing. And that's when the path really starts to become quite fun because the practice itself starts to have a sense of ease in, in it. It becomes like, ooh, this is fun to be in the present moment. You're not wrestling as much with the wandering mind. You're not struggling as much against the hindrances. You have a place to take refuge that's actually pretty comfortable. So, The middle way lies in between sense pleasures, worldly pleasures, and our extreme renunciate practices. The middle way is a combination of using letting go, renunciation, and pleasure. Letting go and pleasure and combining the two into a practice that allows you to let go without harm and creates a sense experience that is blameless, that leads to liberation. So that's the connection there. <laughs> That's my attempt to make the connection. So appreciate your generosity of spirit. Just being here is lovely. I love being with you all. So great to see you. We're over by three minutes. So for those who need to go, I totally understand. If you would like to stay for two, three minutes of meta, I will offer some meta and uh, we'll conclude our evening. Let's fall back into the body for a second. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, and on the exhale, relax fully into the body, bringing awareness back to embodied being. And you might just take note of mood. Is there a feeling tone to this moment? Is there any sense of pleasure, relaxation, or ease in the body? Is there any restfulness, maybe some joy, maybe just contentment? We come together in practice, not only for our own well-being, but for the liberation of all beings. And we remind ourselves of this by engaging in loving-kindness practice. Bringing awareness to this body breathing. 
bringing awareness to a sense of well-being and ease. Let us wish well for others. Let us wish that all beings be free from suffering. Let all beings be free from danger, worry, discontent. That all beings may know true love, true compassion, and true freedom in this very life. Let's share the benefit of our practice with all beings by answering this question. If you could wish anything for all beings in this moment and know the wish would come to pass, what would it be? Bring that aspiration to the altar of your heart. Thank you so much for sharing the evening with us. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.